Good morning, church. This morning we are looking at the passage Nehemiah. Please open your Bibles, and if you need a physical Bible, please raise your hands. The usher will bring one to you. Please open to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73b. And we'll be reading from there till chapter 8, verse 18. And before we go to the passage, let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for gathering us this, this morning. And we praise and thank you that we can come to your word. And we can come to study it uh, and hear it and read it freely in this country. Um, help us, Lord, to, be, to focus on you, to have our eyes and our hearts and our ears uh, open to hear your word. And that uh, we pray that we pray for the pastor, Pastor Matt, this morning as he brings us this word, and that you will plant these seeds in our hearts, and that um, you will help them grow, uh, and that our hearts will be transformed, our lives will be transformed for your glory. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. So, reading from Nehemiah chapter seven, verse seventy-three b. So, the context here is that the the uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem walls have been built and the exiles are returning back to their promised land. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, Stood on his right, uh, on his right stood Metatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshiah, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Mashiah, Ketlita, Azariah, Josabat, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Nehemiah said, Go and rejoice 
Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who had nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of the the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim the word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees, to make booths, as is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by, and, and the, one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had, get, that had returned from, from exile, built booths and lived in them. From the days of Josh Joshua, son of Nan, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. And this is the word of God. All right, well, well done on, on that Bible reading and getting through those names. A tricky one there, wasn't it? Well, morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at CPE, and we're going to be looking at that chapter of uh, Nehemiah uh, together. Uh, great chapter, uh, fascinating chapter that we're going to get into in a moment. Now, uh, I'm not sure uh, what you guys were discussing, but as soon as you start talking about national reform, you start kind of immediately, your brain does just go towards politics goes towards protests, goes towards all kinds of things, uh, reform the economy, social policy, distribute welfare, whatever it is that you might have, uh, your mind might have gone to. Well, uh, I looked up, uh, I actually asked that question just kind of in Google and the internet to kind of see the kinds of things that people were discussing and uh, probably some things weren't too surprising there, things like reversing climate change. Some people saying, well, we need to reform people themselves, we'd stop lying and being greedy, that kind of thing. But uh, I love this one. This was a, a little uh, post there. Someone said this, I would bring back skate parks because as a teen, life's really boring when you're not into drugs, partying or video games. You know, got to bless his soul, the young uh, man who kind of uh, posted that up on the internet uh, as what he'd want to reform about our world. Well, if reforming the world, if reforming a nation is so difficult, uh, you know, if it was easy, we'd have fixed it by now, isn't it? But reform isn't easy. It never will be. It's not to say that we can't reform things. Uh, you know, I'm personally thankful for gun reform in this country, for example. 
But you have to say that even then, it came at the cost of many lives before uh, that reform came through. Now, the path to reform is something that is difficult, it's fraught. Just think about your own life. What on the personal level? What is it like to try and reform yourself and your own habits, your eating or exercise or your screen time? How hard is that? You see, how do you truly reform personally, corporately? This whole series has really been about ancient Israel's path to reform. Last week, we saw about the rebuilding process, that they rebuilt the walls around the city, and to see that completed was a great victory, a great moment. And so we've seen a sense of physical reform, a physical rebuilding. But this next phase is all about the spiritual reform. What does it mean to actually change the people's hearts? You see, uh, last week we heard about how they overcame immense pressure to build, rebuild the walls of rebuilding Jerusalem. But as we start to turn to spiritual reform, we actually start to see that as hard as that was, rebuilding a wall and having this opposition and insults and people threatening them, spiritual reform is in fact far harder. Now, I don't know if you're kind of uh, in the zone as, you, as the, the Bible's being read out there and trying to place yourself in that moment. Uh, the Israelites, they'll be returned next. They gathered together for a week-long uh, time of reading the Word together and reflecting on that. Uh, read with me chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 again there. So all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the preacher, uh, teacher of the Lord, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the first day in the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the gate in the presence of the men, women and others you could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Right now, I don't know if you think that, you know, an hour and a half or an hour and a quarter for church is a long time. Now, you can imagine the people gathered there as the sun rises and they were there till noon reading from the book of the law. The men, the women, and yes, all the children who were there old enough to understand. Now, this wasn't just kind of a, a dry reading of the law. Uh, it seems like people were there. They were engaged. They were attentive. They were fully in tune with everything that was going on. You see, actually what you see here in this chapter is probably one of the closest descriptions you can get to Old Testament church. Right, it's a little insight to what the, the Israelites would have been like for them to gather together and to, for them to hear from the Word, for them to have it explained, for them to respond. Now, what is it that Ezra is actually reading? Well, he said that he's reading from the book of the law of Moses. Now, what he's really referring to is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as it's known. Okay, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, in their time they would have called it the Torah. Now, if you know those five books of the Bible, you know it's not just a list of do's and don'ts and laws and commandments. Actually, it's the story of Israel from the days of creation right through the formulation of the people and how they were brought into the promised land after being saved out of Egypt. And then they were given the law to help them to know what it meant to live in relationship with God. It's a combination of history and commandments, how they received that law in the wilderness, 
It's about how Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, gives them the choice, choose life or choose death and disobey. Imagine the moment Ezra is standing up on this large wooden platform so all the people, thousands of them there, can see and hear. And it's not just him monologuing to the people. You hear the people uh, uh, responding with their amens. And at the end, they all bow down. They worship Yahweh. Verse 7, the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, uh, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sabbathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, I just want you to kind of sit there for a moment, highlighting that fact that, that now there is, now they've kind of imagined them split off into smaller groups now, and, and these Levites are doing their job there, which is for them to actually stand there explaining the law, okay? It's very much what we call here at CP, we call it expository preaching, right? We actually want to um, highlight uh, uh, and explain to you Scripture so that you understand, that you feel the weight of it. Now, in Israel's moment, they're probably also a translation thing as well, because the Old Testament was all written in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, whereas the people who'd all been brought up in Babylon uh, would have been brought up, uh, brought up with, uh, with Aramaic. So here at CPU, you know, us preachers, we can spend anywhere up to 10 to 15 hours uh, putting together a sermon so that, that we make it easy to, to understand, to make it relevant and vital for us to understand as God's people. But I wonder if we respond anything like how the Israelites respond. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, just imagine the size of the word is being read and explained. The people are weeping. They are mourning. You might have been mistaken, instead of attending church, that you were attending a funeral. I want to give you 30 seconds. Person next to you, why are they weeping? Why do you reckon they might be weeping as the words of these first five books are read out to them? Have a chat to the person next to you. All right, I'll hold you up there. Isn't it an interesting moment? Words of the law brought to them, read out to them, and they can't help but weep. They're weeping as they're confronted with their failings. I reckon they're weeping as they see how unbelievably faithful God had been to them in spite of their failings. 
You know, we saw a couple of weeks ago how the people had failed in their sin of intermarrying with all the people around them. This, this was a moment of deep conviction. See, I wonder what was the last time, just think about your own life, when was the last time that you were just brought to your knees by the Word of God? Brought to your knees just weeping and mourning over your sin, right? When you just feel that sense of, 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 of that deep sense of guilt or shame maybe even. You know, I remember once uh, really mourning, it was my pride and insecurity more than anything, you know, because I'd have these moments where I just knew I, w- I would lie and cover up my sin. I wouldn't kind of lie to be deceptive, but more so just lying to kind of uh, try and keep in people's good books, imagining that, well, everyone's going to have a good view of me, and so I would lie and, and cover up any, any faults. And I remember just being beside myself, that I would obscure the truth in that way. You see, this is a good thing, a healthy thing, to come and have those moments of deep conviction. But, but, here's the thing. Deep conviction is not enough on its own. It's not enough on its own. Feeling guilt or shame, I don't reckon it reforms it on your own. Only it's the fact that many people get wrong. In fact, how often do you think about your own self? Maybe you felt guilty, you felt ashamed. And then guess what? A week later, you're returning to the very same sin. You see, actually, all through the Bible, the conviction of sin is always accompanied by the joy of forgiveness. When conviction just turns to like the self-loathing or self-pity, it tends actually not to go anywhere. It tends not to create real lasting change. Now, you need the the draw of joy to draw your heart toward God to see lasting change. And that's what we see happen in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and teacher of the law, and Levites who were instructing people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not warn or weep. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. You see, what happens there is that they are deeply convicted of, that, of their sin and on, on their failings. But then Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites, actually say, no, 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 but you can't just stop there. Don't just sit there. Go and celebrate now. And you might think, what, what is going on here? This is, this is like, is that kind of just saying, no, 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 don't be sad. You know, don't worry about your sin. No, I don't think that's what they're saying. I think they're actually saying is, as deep as you are convicted by your sin, remember. Remember the God who had been faithful to you. Remember that the God who continually came to the people's rescue all the way through the Old Testament. See, I think there's a really, really important principle here. See, how many of us just get stuck in that negative cycle of shame you mourn your sin, you cry, maybe even feel better for a little while, but it doesn't lead anywhere. You see, I think Israel were genuinely hurting, but Ezra and Nehemiah and their leaders knew that, well, reform's going to come not from pain and sorrow, though that is a good starting point, 
I think he sends a way to celebrate, to remember something vital to the identity as God's people, that it is God, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love to them, that actually makes them who they are. And so they're sent to go and celebrate, to not just sit and, and dwell in their sin and their failings. You see, what happens then is actually they rediscover a new part of the law, right? So the law wasn't just about the things you can and can't do, but it was actually all about the way that in which you are to worship God. And so what they rediscover is this, the festival of booths. Okay, we are. Yeah, here we are. The festival of booths. Now, what is the festival of booths? Well, uh, what happens in the next scene is that actually the people come together and they're instructed to go and create some temporary huts, right? Just these kind of little uh, temporary straw huts. And, and what it was meant to be it was meant to be the reminder of what their time was like in the wilderness when God guided them, God walked with them. As they had escaped from Egypt, they wandered the wilderness, God was with them. And so this festival, they would go for seven days. They rediscovered this in the law, right? The law saying, hey, you know, in the seventh month of the year, go and spend a week together in these temporary huts and go and celebrate with all the choice food and wine, right? So you can just imagine this. It's like a music festival, right? They're all gathered together. You know, imagine being away as a church somewhere. We go out, uh, I don't know, go out to a park somewhere, set up all our tents around. We've got the choicest food and wine there. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you love sashimi. Uh, maybe it's a wood-fired pizza. Uh, I don't know, whatever it is for you. You've got all the best foods out there and it lasts for a week. Nobody goes to work that week. Everybody is there just enjoying life, praising God, hearing from the Word, right? It's a bit like church camp. It's like a week-long church camp, just hanging out together, enjoying life together, enjoying the good things in thankfulness to a faithful and merciful God. In fact, it actually says there, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. See, church, joy is one of the great missing parts of the Christian life. Joy should be a big part of every Christian's life. Will you understand how God has loved you, how he's been faithful to you, how he has poured out his mercy on you and his forgiveness for you? See, in lots of ways, I think joy is the hidden fuel for worship and for reform. It's a joy that leads us to God and His faithfulness to us, a joy that takes that conviction for our, and our shame and our failures, and then it lays them down before a merciful and a kind, faithful God. That's the nutrition that brings out true reform that's deep and heartfelt. And it doesn't just kind of sit and, and, and self-loathe, self-pitying our failures, but actually then goes and moves and walks along this path to joy in the God who loves us, who saved us. You know, we've had some great little moments together as a church. Even this year, we had a big celebration Sunday. We had a great celebration last week as we baptized three people. Next year, we've got a four-day church camp in May next year. going to be a great time together, great moment to celebrate and gather together. But you know, one of the best moments of joy is coming up, isn't it? Christmas. So the best things about Christmas is that moment of just unbridled joy. 
You know, in our household lately, uh, we've had the carols blasting out already because uh, Bonnie's on the music team and starting to kind of pre- uh, to prepare and think ahead to, to some of the carols for, for Christmas. And I've just been reminded, those carols are full of joy. Full of joy. Joy to the world. Remembering that God sends his one and only son into the world to save it. But you know what? Why leave it to Christmas? I reckon the Christian has even more reason to rejoice than the Israelites did back in their day. To make joy a part of your life. And I know that sounds weird to kind of stand up and say, go and be joyful, you know? Go and be joyful, church. But that is what the word says, to go and celebrate. Yes, with good food, wine, whatever it is that brings you joy. It says, go and enjoy that in thankfulness to our God. Now, on the last day of the festival, there is a great assembly moment there. Uh, this is actually chapter 9 now of Nehemiah. Now, if you're wondering, we've actually preached on this already. This is actually where we started uh, in the whole series, because uh, in chapter 9, it really records the whole response of the Israelites to this. We started here because it really recounts the whole history of Israel, how it is that they ended up in exile, and why it was so important for them to recommit themselves now to God. And in lots of ways, these are the, this is the climax of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Now, in, it, in chapter 9, it really highlights that the greatest threat to the people didn't spring from the world or their enemies around them. It actually sprung from their own forgetfulness, that they forgot how good God had been to them. They failed to remember. They didn't remember the miracles. They didn't remember that they were stiff-necked in their own rebellion. Uh, they, talked about going, well, they, you know, they talked about going back to Egypt, back to slavery, in contrast, they also heard about how there was a forgiving God, forgiving God who could have wiped them out in the desert, but he didn't. He didn't. He was a gracious and compassionate God who was slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a God who brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he brings them back again. And when the people are confronted with God's love, and his sovereignty and his goodness, and they see their own sin in stark contrast to that, they're brought down in conviction and confession and repentance. You see, I think in Ezra chapter 8 and 9, you really see the two arms of reform here. Deep conviction on one hand and unbridled joy on the other hand. And you see the two working together. You see the two, and you see the people themselves walking this path of deep conviction and great joy as a path of actually, that's what it means to be a sinful people in relationship with a faithful and merciful God. We will always be in those cycles of confession, repentance, and thankfulness to God. That is part of the Christian life too. Now, this should be the triumphant ending, of course, to the, uh, to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is one final twist to the story, which we'll uh, get to next week. So come back here uh, to hear how the story ends. But let's just think about Ezra and Nehemiah, this story of rebuild, restore, reform. They've had some massive successes, overcame intense opposition and threats and setbacks and overcame many of them. 
And I think there's so much we can take from them, of the people to see how deeply flawed they are, yet to see how earnestly they are seeking God. And as we can see there, Tanzania Reform's been a little bit of a mixed bag, but we've seen how deeply humble and contrite they are, confessing their sin. We've seen today how they stop and rejoice and celebrate in God's goodness to them. But friends, I think that's what we can take from this chapter. See, true reform springs not just from conviction or guilt. True reform springs from joy. And we need the conviction of the heart and the greatness of our sin, and we need a joy-filled celebration of God's goodness to us. See, what we read of Israel's response to the reading of the law is really it's just a little shadow of the response of the Christian to the gospel. That as every week, as we come and as we hear the word explained to us, we should be brought low in confession, humble repentance. And we should be brought up in praise to our great God who's been so kind and merciful to us. And we should then go, go and commit ourselves to wanting to live in a way to honour and worship our God and King. You see, what we see, this little moment, this feast of booze, this celebration, this confession of sin, is just a little snapshot of what church is and what church should be every week. You see, this really looks forward. They are the, the people are looking forward to a moment in which God would send His one and only Son into the world as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. In fact, in John 7, in John 7, the New Testament, as the people, the, the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Booths, Jesus enters and ruffles some feathers by his teaching. But just as the people were gathered together uh, to remember what God had done for them, Jesus stood up during the festival and said this, John chapter 7, verse 37. He said, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And just as the people gathered for the festival to remember that God provided for them in the wilderness. So Jesus comes and he declares that he is the one. He is the one who provides the rivers of living water that will satisfy for eternity. He is the one that you must put your trust in for true reform and for true joy. And that he is the one where you will experience the joy and freedom of having your sins forgiven. You see, church, one of the great skills of any person who wants to see the true spiritual reformation in your life is to be able to regularly walk the path of conviction into joy and to drink deeply from the wells of Jesus' death and resurrection for us that covers our sin. Right, we must learn to walk the path of deep conviction of sin to the joy of God's faithful love and deeper into Christ and the freedom of the forgiveness of sin. You know, John Newton, a great hymn writer, said this, and I really love this quote. He said this. He said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. Wouldn't I pray for us in that now? Let's pray.
Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, as we read about the Israelites coming together and celebrating with joy at the ways in which you have provided for them in the Exodus and then in the exile, Father, we can't help but see the ways in which you have continued to be faithful and merciful to us in sending your Son as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Father, we pray and commit and, con and convicted by our own sin. We know that we have failed. We know that we need you. But Lord, lead us not into our, just lead, leave us not in our guilt and our sorrow, but raise us up in joy at what you have done for us. Might that be the fuel for our worship and the fuel for our own uh, recommitment to wanting to honour you with our lives. Father, might we indeed remember that we are great sinners, but in Jesus, we have a great saviour. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, church, we're just going to take a moment just to reflect on that for yourself, to reflect on what that might mean for you and how that might continue to shape and reform your life. Let's pray.